0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times and the Pointer Institute. On this podcast, Times reporter Lane DeGregory discusses her stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Curlo, and I'm a former enterprise editor at the Times. Today's topic raising writers. Recently, Lane and I joined her mother, Clarissa Thompson, at the Venice, Florida Book Festival. Lane's mother is a retired teacher who has become a prolific writer of poems and books. I moderated a conversation with them as they discussed how they were inspired to become writers and how they work. Thanks to those who organized the festival for letting us share this with you on our podcast. Hope you enjoy it. Talk a little bit about the start of your writing life, like what inspired you, what brought you there? So why don't we start with Clarissa?
2: I had a great aunt and a grandfather who were both authors, Um, and And, uh, I remember stories that they would tell me. I am asthmatic, and when I was a kid, I would end up uh, wheezing in the middle of the night and have to sit up. So my mother would put me in a chair, turn on a light, and hand me a book from my grandfather's library. And finally started on my own when I was able to hold a pencil and write, I started writing poetry. And um, loved Edgar Allan Poe and some of the American poets as well. So that was my first intro. And I probably was five or six years old before I really, when I first really started writing it in kindergarten.
0: I wasn't allowed not to write. (laughs) (laughs) Growing up in my household with mom being an English teacher and a writer and a reader voraciously um, and my father was a huge newspaper consumer. So we were in Washington DC during Watergate. And I remember my dad would be reading me these stories of Woodward and Bernstein while we ate Cheerios and mom was trying to get us out the door to kindergarten. And I thought, oh my God, that's the coolest thing. These young guys are bringing down the president of the United States. Like, Whoa. So six-year-old me decided that's what I wanted to do. Um, we, we did a thing when I was little that I ended up doing with my two boys where you, we would kind of make up stories about people we'd see. You know, here's a lady at the grocery store. Where's she coming from? What's she? Doing? Doing? Is she shopping for a party? Does she have children? And I would do it with my kids in the car. Oh my God, look at that weird guy in the car. What do you think his story is? You know, and we would make up stories and tell them together. And I think that oral tradition of telling stories was is just as influential as putting paper,
1: pen to paper, you know. When did you know Lane was going to be a writer?
2: When she was five, yeah. <laughs> she told me I mean, there was no way about it. Actually, we went through a lot trying to encourage her writing. When she was in elementary school, she wanted to write. And uh, the teachers let her write for, um, uh, they would put a little publication together every once in a while. But by middle school, she decided that we should ha- they should have a uh, lit magazine or a newspaper and nobody was sponsoring a newspaper. So Lane on her own went to the two teachers who were head of the honors group and said, if I do all the work, would you put your name on the thing and start a club? And so for some reason they agreed.
1: Um, Lane, what are some of the Uh, lessons that you took from childhood that you shared with Ryan Tucker growing up? I think we had a long
0: commute to school with my boys, like almost an hour each way to elementary school, and we would listen to music and deconstruct songs. So Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, who's the main plot? Who's the character? What's the plot? What's the setting? Uh, We listened to a lot of Beatles and Neil Young, and the kids would learn the lyrics and then would talk about how those songs told stories. And I think, especially for kids who aren't readers, sometimes that's a good way to get them thinking about storytelling. My older son would write fantasies for Mario Kart. You know, he loved to play video games. Well, let me write, why don't you write a plot for Mario Kart? Write a new video game for Mario Kart, you know? And so stuff like that, that I think when you can tap into kids, even if they're not readers, you can tap into them as storytellers, if that makes sense. I will <laughs>
2: add on to that. I had one group of boys in one class that just wanted to do car- uh, comic books. And they kept saying, "We just want to draw, we just want to do comic books." So I had them um, do the the captions on the comic books, and I said, "I'm grading you on your uh, construction and your punctuation on there." So I was able to let them go ahead and do what they wanted. It was a uh, slow learner class, and they were they were delightful kids. But they were, um, ended up doing their comic books, and they were so thrilled. And they knew that everything in the bubble had to be uh, corrected and it was going to be uh, graded.
1: I was going to ask you guys if you had a favorite memory of reading or writing, the two of you together, that you shared growing up.
2: Lane, and when she was in high school, she had to do uh, all these articles and there was a limit of, was it 1,000 words?
0: Well, there are different word counts for yeah, each there article. word counts. But if you and wrote one word over the word count, he would...
2: You've Lower a letter
0: grade. So yeah. if you wrote 301 words, and it was a B. If you wrote 302 words, it was a C. And he was like a complete stickler. And and mom and I were having our teenage mother-daughter issues at that time, <laughs> if you guys can relate. And And the only thing that we really bonded over then was we would stay up late at night after Mom, after Amy and my dad went to bed and she and I would sit at the kitchen table and she'd help me. I would write 600 words and it would be 300 words. And she'd be like, all right, 289, 279. And that was like a really bonding thing at a time when we were having. So I should have been sending her stories
2: to you. Right, I have been. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, It just went from her to you to have to do that. <laughs> i tell you, I learned so much doing it. We would sit there with hot chocolate and popcorn till 2 and 3 a.m. trying to get her stories down. But when I started writing myself, my very first novel was 600 pages long. And I sent it off, and the uh, publisher wrote back, and she said, this is very nice, but let's make it 500. So I went through trying to reduce 100 words. Ended up, long story short, she wanted 300 pages. And I finally wrote back and said, why didn't you tell me that in the first place? But I learned from what we were doing with Lane, and I still use it now when I edit for people, you could substitute um, an adjective for a prepositional phrase, you saved a word, (laughs) you know. There are a lot of ways that you can get around it to shorten the work and it makes the work better. I think the other thing was looking at down the road, what is it you're trying to prove? Does it move the story forward or not?
1: What qualities do you guys each think that good writers possess?
2: plushcare.com slash weight loss. I think the most thing is being observant. And as Lane was saying, you know, driving down the street with your kids and saying, look at this guy over here. I used to do it with houses. Who do you suppose lives there and what do they do? Being observant of people, of what they're doing. So many people today are so imbued with their own self-importance and what they're doing. And uh, they don't look away and I think with my writing right now, all my writing is historical. And I'm looking at these people like uh, Major Francis Dade with the Dade Massacre. He was out um, shooting Indians and trying to keep peace. What was he like as a person? Was he that bloodthirsty? No, he was an army major. And he had signed, uh, signed on um, to be in the army for so many years. This was a job he had to do. And so what I'm looking at with all of my characters is what what are they like as a person?
0: Yeah, I would just say curiosity. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think if you're not curious, you can't be a writer, right? And if you are curious, you can write about anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's one thing that maybe sometimes gets lost on kids is they feel like they have to make something up to write about. Start kids writing news stories. Start kids covering, you know, go cover the yard sale out there. Go cover your brother's baseball game. Go write about, you know, the play in your school. And start, give them something to write about so they don't have to feel like they have to come up with something fantastical or, or magical that maybe not, you know, is in their real life. I can't make up anything. I've never written fiction. I, I think the things that happen in real life are so much more interesting than anything that I could
1: make up myself. As you research for your work and for your work, um, what goes into that? What do you think is most important?
0: Yeah, so I mean, I guess initially as a lot of it's the same, researching online and trying to find that stuff, but mom is allowed to make things up and I'm not. So <laughs> everything that I write has to be true and verifiable. And, and most of my research is, is interviewing people, primarily. Um, going through archives somewhat, you know, looking at newspapers.com and historical accounts of stuff. But, but a lot of it more is just interviewing people and talking to people. Um, I mean, I, one, of the story, one of the last stories Maria and I did, I spent 12 hours in a COVID ICU ward, which we've been trying for what, a year and a half to get into a COVID ward. And I wanted to tell that story. What is it like to be a nurse in that COVID IC, ICU ward? And the research for that was basically trying to, to gather all of like COVID data, right? How many people have died? How many people have been vaccinated? How many people at this hospital have checked in and not checked out? So I did a lot of that research before I
2: spent that 12 hours in the ICU ward. My research has been very, very different. Initially, I was able to talk to people and get background. So I learned a lot from people, but then when I had to start doing stuff on people I didn't know who were long since dead, it was a lot of research. And the research, what I'm finding I'm getting the most out of right now, are the letters Um, back in the um, 1800s there was, no, there was no television, no telephones, no um, phones, uh, no videos, nothing else. So the only way they could spread ideas was letters from the um, general in Tampa to the head of the um, war department up in D.C., and it had to go by ship. So it was sometimes several months late when it got up there. But I'm finding a lot in, uh, with that because you're, you're getting people's thoughts it's not a news report. And their voices. And, um, yeah, what they're, what they're talking about and telling you, and I'm getting a lot more information about that. Harder to find. The editor for my uh, newest book contacted me and said, do we call this fiction or nonfiction? And I said, <laughs> well, all my facts are verified, but I, uh, who knows how Major Francis Dade felt about stuff. So we've got to call it fiction. So I think there's a there's a fine line there, uh, what you call fiction or nonfiction.
1: Or based on a true story. Yeah. He wasn't going to sue, though, so you would have been fine no. either way. Lane, Lane <laughs> yeah. was
2: great one time. I said to her, you know, I really worried about the, the one of the relatives in my first set of books um, was kind of a bad guy. Nobody liked him. And I said to her, you know, I'm so worried because I know that there's some of Cave's relatives still living in North Carolina. And Lane says, Mom, you can't libel the dead. So that, that, has, gone, that has gone with me forever. Since I'm doing historical, I can't libel anybody, so I'm good.
1: <laughs> Can I get you guys to
0: talk about your most memorable stories? I mean, the story that won the Pulitzer Prize was The Girl in the Window about a feral child. She mentioned that was Certainly memorable because of what the story was and the reaction that it got. And it came out in 2009, which was when all the newspaper layoffs started. So I was like, okay, maybe if I get a Pulitzer Prize, they won't fire me. <laughs> so that was that was pretty huge. But I think my favorite, favorite story of all times was Bobo. Um, it was the, my oh, yes. my son was four, my little boy was four, and he had this stuffed elephant named Bobo. It had like little plaid pajamas on it. And he took Bobo everywhere. He, he drooled on him. He cried on him. He took him to nap time. He fed him Cheerios. And we're driving home from a wedding one night. My husband was not with me. And I'm driving the car in a rainstorm when I 75, coming home from Atlanta. And I thought the kids were asleep and I had the radio on. I'm jamming. And all of a sudden, my, my older son starts screaming, oh,
2: my God, Bob, Bob,
0: stop, stop, stop. It's a horrible tragedy. Bobo just flew out the window. So this little stuffed elephant's on the side of the road. And I'm like, do I be a hero and go rescue the elephant and risk my children parking on the side of the highway in the middle of the night? Or do I teach this stupid four-year-old a lesson? Because he's not supposed to be flinging his elephant out the window. And I went to work the next morning. And we had our staff meeting. And I was telling the story while we were waiting for the meeting to start. And my editor said, Lane, go write that story. And I was like, what? He said, in this room, how many people have had a Bobo or a stuffed animal or their kids have had one, right?
1: right? Everybody's
0: lived that story. So I had never, ever, I was 33 years old. I'd never thought of writing about me. I'd never thought about writing about my family or my world. And that story, other than the one that won the Pulitzer, got more hits than any other story because everybody had that story to share. And I love that story because I got to write as a mom. And to me, that was my first mom story. Tell them what happened. Tell them what you did. Oh, well, it was (laughs) raining really hard and and all these trucks were whizzing by. And so I ended up having to pull over on this bridge. She
1: did go back. And I went
0: back four times. I circled. you know how long those exits are on 75? Four times I circled around till finally my older son goes, I think that's him. And he was like stuck on a guardrail on the side of the highway. And I rescued Bobo. And Tucker loved him. And I thought I was such a great hero. And I wrote this story. And I got like nine hate mail letters. How dare you endanger your children? What are you thinking of, you terrible mother? <laughs> but we still have Bobo and he still, my, my son is 24 and he still has Bobo by his bed. So. <laughs> and,
1: and you can still find the story online if you search I break for Bobo. I break for Bobo. <laughs> break for Bobo.
2: Um, my theory is the apple never falls far from the tree. We always said that when we were interviewing parents too at in, in school. Um, when I was a kid, I shared a room with my sister. And um, so I couldn't turn the light on, but I'm like, Lane, I had to write at night. So we had a windowsill that was under a streetlight, and I would sit up there and write my poetry at night. And um, one night when Lane was about 14, I guess, I was fast asleep, and I heard this crash, and I jumped up and run up to see what had happened, and went by her bedroom, and she's standing there shaking. Mom, are you going to kill me? Uh, I I was writing my poetry on the windowsill, (laughs) and she knocked her with a lamp. And I started to laugh, and I laughed so hard. (laughs) She says, why are you laughing at me? I said, because I used to do the same thing. (laughs) So,
1: Thanks for listening. Don't forget, you can find other episodes on pointer.org forward slash right lane. And please join our Facebook group. This podcast was produced by Jesse Lauk. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory.